The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Nicholas Gregoratis Show. I am your host, Nicholas Gregoratis. I have some pretty cool news for you guys, and that is that the show is now also going to be in video format. So you'll be able to see video recordings of the show at YouTube. If you just search for the Nicholas Gregoratis Show on YouTube, you'll find this episode, which will be the first one that has been done with actual video of the guests speaking. There are videos on YouTube of the show, but it's just with a static background. And as I said, this one's going to have the actual video feed, which uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it pans out. Obviously, the first one is, you know, the first one of anything is usually not great. And I, I know I struggled a little bit with the tech, but it will get better as time goes on. So please go support and subscribe on YouTube. I have one of the coolest people I know as guests, as, as my guest today, Mr. Jack Maxwell. He is, there's no other word to put it, this guy is just cool. He's overcome incredible adversity in his life to become the human being he is, the very special human being that he is. And I know you guys are going to love this episode. But before we start the show, I want to remind you, if you guys want to support me and the show and my work, please support the sponsors. The first one is Bub's Naturals. They make fantastic collagen protein and other health food supplements. You can find them at bubsnaturals.com. And if you use the coupon code NickG20, that's N-I-C-G-2-0, you'll get 20% off any of their amazing products. Also, if you are wanting to evolve psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally, if you're dealing with a challenge that you or a plateau that you can't break through in your life and you know you need help, I would suggest you I would strongly suggest you check out my mentor, mentor Rocco Jarman, go to his site, eyeswideopenlife.org. And now uh, you can not only listen to his wonderful podcast, you can book a session with him. This guy will get you over the line. He will make you face whatever it is you need to face to go to the next level. I cannot endorse him highly enough. So please go check his work out. A bunch of you guys have taken me up on that and you've worked with him and you've, you've, let me know just how powerful it's been. So if it feels like something that you, you 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 need or that you'd get benefit from, do not hesitate. Go check out Rocco's work. Okay, guys, let's dive into the episode with Jack Maxwell. Here we go. Southie Jack Maxwell. Hi, brother. How you doing? Nick, what's happening, man? How you doing? Good. This is the first time I'm ever doing a video version of my podcast because uh, with a face like yours, I can't hide it from the world. So Thanks for coming on. <laughs> oh, you charmer, you. That's so funny. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. You're one of those guys who, uh, when I met you, you just had such a good vibe. I was just like, this guy's cool. He's cool to be around. I hope I'm going to be friends with this person. And it it seems like we have become friends, which I'm really happy about. I think so. Thank yeah. you, though. I feel the same way. And I did when we met. You're just a, you're just a good cat with the... A real honest soul and Thanks, uh, 
it's it's an honor to be your friend, Nick. Yeah, same, same, man. So you know, today, look, there's loads of interesting things about you. Uh, one of them is that you had a very successful show called The Booze Traveler, which um, that's generally where you're known or what you're known from. And I'd love to talk about that in a little bit. But uh, I actually think that's not the most interesting thing about you. I think uh, you you have some depths which are have a lot more more stuff that we can we can gain from. So uh, I wanted to start with your background. I mean, you're from from the south side of Chicago, and I know you had a a very challenging childhood for several reasons. And I'd really like to get into that because the way you overcame it is really impressive. Sure. Actually, I'm from South Boston. Sorry, I apologize. That's okay. Yeah. No problem. South Boston. uh, There's a place there called uh, the D Street Projects, one of three project communities in in Southie, as they call it. And yes, I grew up there during the uh, 60s and 70s. And uh, the, I guess the thing unique about it, people know it from certain movies now, Goodwill Hunting, Mystic River, uh, et cetera, uh, the movie Southie with Donnie Wahlberg. So, I, you know, it's, it's, I, I, it's, it's probably been portrayed in the movie somewhat accurately, I guess, at some point. But also, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, of course, they use artistic license and all, but the, the projects, just to clarify, were built after World War II for the baby boomers. It's low-income housing. I didn't have a father around. It was just my mother and me and my baby sister. And we were, uh, I shouldn't say forced to live there, but able to live there, uh, low-income housing. And, of course, what comes with that is uh, a whole host of things yeah, <laughs> I'm still yeah. working through now. <laughs> but that being said, uh, I, I, I am happy about the person it made me. Not for what I went through, I would never say I'd never change it because I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But at the same time, uh, you know, you, you can't look back and with, you can look back with wisdom and I suppose insight and, and say, okay, this happened and why and how that affects you now. And hopefully it makes you stronger and you learn from it because we don't learn from the win. We learn from the lose, right? We, we learn from that side of it. That's how we get better. We win, we're happy, we celebrate all of that. So to have that kind of a, childhood uh where there's so much to learn from uh i think it made me the person i am today which hopefully is a more empathetic person to others with a sense of forgiveness for myself and compassion towards others yeah well i mean i I would say that you're definitely that kind of person and it's interesting i find that that you know generally human life contains it contains suffering right like this there's no way out of that everyone's going to suffer in their life right but it's been my experience that generally the people who have it good in the beginning suffer later. And the people who suffer in the beginning have it good later. So that's interesting. You know, I saw yeah. a quote by the Dalai Lama along those lines and I don't know who came up with it originally, but I really tried to live like this. And I, I've listened to this uh, CD collection. He has uh, the art of happiness because that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'd like to perfect yeah. the art of happiness. Yeah. But one of the things he says is, or said, is pain is inevitable. Suffering is a choice. Mm, for sure. So it, it depends how long you carry that with you, that pain, which turns into suffering. So I don't mean to be cliche about it or to write it off, but uh, I think there's some wisdom in that. 100%. So uh, let's, let's talk about that, Jack, like your childhood, because look, I've, I've heard this, this story before. And it, as I said to you before we started recording it, it really affected me deeply. Uh, and 
I, I know it's probably quite challenging for you to talk about, but I, I think, I mean, it's an amazing story what you went through as a kid. And I'd, I'd love for you to share that with us, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You can leave the interview. I don't know what it is you want me to talk about. You just bring up subjects and I'll cover sure. them honestly, I promise. So you, uh, you said you grew up without your father being around in the projects, right? That's, that's accurate. Yes. They got divorced when I was one. Back in the 60s, oftentimes, too often, I guess, when uh, a couple got pregnant, uh, they got married because that was the thing to do. Right. right? The honorable thing, even though they were uh, maybe mismatched, which was the case with my mother and father. He <laughs> didn't really want to be a, a father of family man that way, I guess. He didn't want to be a dad. And uh, so it didn't work out. And he left right away. So I'm somewhat in my childhood, but not nearly often enough. Sometimes I go months without seeing him, of course. Mm -hmm. I found out the reason why uh, later on. And then uh, he died at 57 years old. And I hadn't spoken to him for about five or six years, which we can get into if, you, if mm -hmm. you'd like, if you find it interesting. But I, I feel a real loss, a sense of not only did I not get to know my father, the little I got to know uh, was unpleasant and disturbing and unfortunate. Uh, yet I asked for the truth, right? So you might as well be ready to accept it, whatever it is. At the time, I was only 18. I didn't understand that at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't see him much after that at all. But I learned somewhat who I am. And that's why I went through that painful process. I knew it was not going to be a no, uh, any bed of roses any day at the beach, you know? There's no door price getting to know my father, but I had to do it so I know who I am, or at least partially anyway, or the potential of what I could become either way, depending on the path I take. Yeah, that, that, that thing you said, that the potential that, that you could become, I, I'm really a big believer in this, this idea of negative examples that can be used positively. And I think- Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like there's, there's people in my life, like my dad's a very cool guy. Uh, he wasn't didn't neglect me or anything like that but looking at several of the things that he did like I, I consider that a negative example of how I don't want to conduct myself in certain scenarios so it's cool that, that you feel the same um now it's my understanding that the root of the the issues with your dad why it was so difficult and unpleasant to be around when you actually did see him was because he was a junkie right is that correct yeah sure he was uh he was. He was a drug addict uh, that shot needles in his arm. I don't know when it started, of course, because I hadn't seen them. But after high school or during high school, I got the bright idea that I would go live with my father. And my mother wasn't up for it, but she knew she couldn't stop me. And uh, so she sent me off with uh, some words of advice and uh, go, go find yourself, son. Mm -hmm. And so I took all my classes my senior year up front and graduated half a year early. I didn't walk with my class. I didn't do any of that just so I could prepare for Boston. So my, instead of enjoying the second half of my senior year, I worked wherever I could at a gas station, different places, saved all the money I could to go to Boston. And I promised my mother as part of the exchange that I would go to college while I was there. So I enrolled in a, in a, in a college and tried to do that and to live with my father. And he was all for it. And he was living with my grandmother at the time, his mother. And I got there and it, uh, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it didn't meet any expectations uh, or even, I shouldn't even call them expectations. Excuse me for that helicopter. Um, 
because I'm outside. It's a beautiful day here in Sherman Oaks, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I guess it's just what I pictured. That's what I should. I shouldn't say expectations, but I thought we would catch up. We could mm-hmm. speak man to man. Now I was 18 years old. I could understand things about him maybe that I didn't know before. I could learn his ways, how to be a man. No one really ever showed me up to that point in the way he could. I knew it was going to be limited because I knew he had been um, in trouble prior, but I didn't know about his drug addiction at all. And one day I, uh, I find a, a hypodermic needle on the floor while he was out. And I brought it to my grandmother. I said, does this explain everything this year? Because he wasn't working, he was staying home, he was paranoid, he's looking through curtains. I knew something was up. But in those few weeks, until I found that needle, I wasn't quite sure what. Mm -hmm. And then she did the one thing. If you had a script, Nick, you would reveal this as someone who was an enabler and explain some of the reason why he was the way he was. She said to me, Oh, as she averted her eyes down to the floor, that's his medicine. He <laughs> needs his medicine. Wow. I knew then I was on my own, even as a kid. So mm-hmm. he comes back and I, I confront him, not physically, but I say, hey, what the hell's going on? Part of that was fear, not just disappointment. I didn't know what I was in for. The cop's going to come bust us all, take him away before I got to know him. I'm stuck taking care of my grandmother at 18. What's going on? All of these things. But really, I was concerned for his life. He could overdose at any moment. So uh, we had the conversation. He tried to talk his way around it. He was a bit of a used car salesman. I mean, he was a used car salesman. He did. <laughs> but he had that, uh, that ability to talk around things. Should have been a politician. Mm-hmm. And over the ensuing months, uh, things happened that... Uh, yeah, I guess would be uh, I'd struggle to talk about them, not because they hurt, which they certainly do, but because I want to make sure they're not tainted by my memory or what I wanted it to be. So I'll try to be honest. Uh, excuse me. I will be honest with you about the details. Let me just think through them. There was one time when he swore he had enough and that was it. And, uh, it was going to be, you know, me and him and he was going to get better. And I just couldn't be happier. So I drive him to rehab. Or an initial meeting. It wasn't. He wasn't going to check in that day, but just to see what it was about and to register and what have you. And I remember, I'm reading a Sports Illustrated with Larry Bird on the cover, and I was in Boston. And this is, you know, the Celtics were getting good and really good, and they were winning championships, what have you. And uh, I'm there so long. I I did this, even though I don't have a watch. I wondered. What the hell's going on? But then I waited because I wanted to show grace. I wanted to say, well, okay, this is his process. Fine. But as a teenager, I was a lot more energetic than I am now. That's for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. So I read that thing back to front and read it again. Finally, I I said to the receptionist, what's going on? And she points me to the back. I go to the back and the nurse there or admitting nurse or whatever you want to call it, I even though that wasn't, uh, he wasn't there that day to be admitted. But one who does that says, oh, he left five minutes after he got here. What? I was in the lobby. Did I, was I reading and I didn't see him walk out? And she said, no, he went that way. And he went out the back exit door and left me there. 
So when we got home, by the way, he took the car. So I had to take a, I walked to the train station, took the train, and then took the bus from there, got off and walked home. And I was enraged. I was so hurt and disappointed and angry and mad and all of it. Because I knew then he wasn't serious. And right away he comes home, he's pretending, he came home after I did. He pretended he was in such a good mood. I know because he was high, he was using. Shouldn't even say high. That's generally thought of as, I guess, sometimes as using marijuana or cannabis. But he was on drugs. I could see it in his eyes. He was pinned, all of it, meaning his pupils were dots. Mm. And uh, I said, whoa, what the hell happened? Oh, no, you don't understand. They wanted to keep me. I had to get out of there right away. Ding, bang, boom, boom, all of this. I said, but you left me there. I'm your kid. I'm a teenager. Lucky I have money in my pocket. You left me there. Why couldn't you just bring me with you? And by the way, why did you leave? Forget about you left me there. You also left. And I couldn't handle him. He was an adult. He was 25 years older than me. So he was probably 43-ish at this, at this time. He was at, you know, he, he was fluent in bullshit. He could really talk his way around things. I never bought it because I come from him. I understood that. But I was so mad. And he's, no, nah, no, nah, you don't understand. I'm going to do it. It's just I don't want to do it right there. Anything. So anyway, I calmed down, I guess. But the thing that turned it, one day I see him jonesing. He needs his stuff. And what he was taking is a thing called Dilaudid mostly and those are little tiny little orange pills that they give to cancer patients usually intravenously from what i understand when they're about to die i mean this is really some of the strongest stuff around at the time mm. anyway in 1981 and uh so or 80 i guess anyway as it turns yeah 81 as it as it turns out uh I see him looking around where he hid this like a squirrel trying to find that buried nut from months ago. Mm-hmm. And just so happened before that, I looked between the radiator and the window and I saw a rolled up piece of tinfoil mm-hmm. because we had radiators back then, not central heating. And mm-hmm. there was a crack between. And I was looking out the window, I happened to look down, rolled up tinfoil. It doesn't make sense. I take it out. There's two Dilaudid pills. So I, as he's jonesing and sweating and bouncing off the walls, I say, is this what you're looking for? And I, I show him, give me that, give me that. And he's never like that. It's very Jekyll and Hyde. He's always happy and fun and smiling and joking around. And I said, but you're a drug addict. I can't give it to you. It could kill you. And all these things I was trying to just spit out of my mouth at the time to show my disappointment and anger and hurt. And he said, no, I need it. You don't understand. Give it to me right now. So I did something that proved to me that I, I, I guess I was ready to handle whatever life was going to give me, including him. I said to him, I held it in my fist and I said, you tell me that these are more important to me, to you. These are more important to you than I am. And I'll give them to you. Very selfish thing to do at the time because he was hurting. But I needed to know that I had to draw that line of demarcation in the sand, or at least thought I did at 18 years old. I would have handled it differently now today, of course. And he doesn't even, he does the same thing his mother does. That's where he gets it from. He just averts his eyes down to the floor and just nods his head up and down. Can't even say yes because the shame is choking his throat. He can't say the words. And I gave it to him. He runs right in the bathroom, cooks it up in a spoon, puts it in. Uh, his arm comes out, stumbles, falls asleep, uh, passes out on the couch. I shouldn't say falls asleep, passes out on the couch. And I knew then I lost him. There's nothing I could do. There was nothing. That was it. A couple months later, he got busted. 
and uh, went to jail, prison. So then I moved back to Arizona from Boston. Failed experiment, 11 months in. Well, I, I have a few questions. So first of all, thank you, man, for sharing that. I, I, I can't even imagine. I, can't, I mean, the, it's testament to you that you've turned out the way you have because there's a lot of people out there who've had far um, less terrible examples and that have become far, far worse or, or like just not done anywhere near as well as you have. Um, Everyone so, has their thing, you know, I yeah. wouldn't diminish what anyone went through. I just went through that for some people, uh, you know, uh, a lot less is a lot worse to them because of their makeup, sure. their character, what they expect, all of that. But and I know you're not doing that. I just mean I'm not boohooing in the corner. This is what happened. And this is how I have to deal with it is what I finally yeah. came to. And a big, so it comes back to it's it's honesty, right? It's, it's also it's facing things like your dad when when you held those things out. And he didn't want to look, he didn't want to face it. He didn't want to look that thing in the eye, right? And that, like, to me, is one of the hallmarks of what makes an actual adult as opposed to a child is this ability to face difficult things, right? And, I mean, we all stumble. I, I say that, like, I do that all the time. Sometimes I look away from things. I'm getting better at it. But there's still things sometimes that are so painful and difficult to look at. I have to look away. Um, but I, always, I know that when I look away, it never ends well. It, or it's just delaying something that's inevitable. I have to face it sooner or later. So thanks for confirming that. I wanted to ask you, what do you think was the root of your father's? I mean, I, I believe that it's whenever someone has an addiction, I believe it's a spiritual sickness that's manifesting as a physical addiction. And I mean, I don't know if that's true or not. It's just, uh, it's, it's a theory of mine, but I, I have a, a pretty high degree of certainty that there's some truth to that. What do you think was the root for your father of, of, of that heroin or that delotted addiction? Of course, we can never know, but I have some guesses, certainly. Uh, when he was uh, 17, he joined the Navy and uh, his father died. I don't know how many months in, a year in or whatever it was. His father died and the uh, Navy sent him home to take care of his mother. They should do that with the oldest son, I believe. Mm. Uh, they didn't want to actually have that because he shared five kids to take care of. So he came back and I think he probably took the role in psychological terms, I guess, of the significant other, of the parent. Instead of being the son, still being nurtured and taken through that experience, he had to then be the father to his siblings and therefore was able to get away with things that maybe he wouldn't have as a kid. Plus he went through the Navy, so he comes back with a different attitude perhaps, but he lost his father and I know they were close and he meant a lot to him and he died suddenly of a heart attack at uh, a very young age. I think he was, might've been 44 years old or something like that. Wow. And, uh, and that, that was difficult on my father. So I'm sure between not wanting to feel that pain, not knowing how to deal with it, having to deal with his mother who was quite codependent and his siblings, which were, they were all great, but just had to, he had to take care of kids younger than him. And it went all the way down the line uh, to a, just a, a little girl my youngest aunt was. So I, I think between masking that, he never spoke to anyone, never talked to anyone. You saw he was at the rehab clinic. I guess he didn't believe in that, although I never really had that conversation with him. He was just going to deal with it. And he was going to deal with it by feeling no pain, as my grandmother would say. He's feeling no pain. And that's what he did. So I think it probably started with some kind of self-medication and graduated to whatever he could find. And the reason he was arrested, he was forging prescriptions and uh, going into pharmacies and uh, 
saying, look what happened. He, what he would do is he, he burst his own eardrum and then mixed up some kind of fluid and put it in his ear and would go to doctors and say, oh, look what I just did. I need something. And that's how he would get this. And they'd say, what do you want? Well, Delaud had seemed to work before. And they were, you know, it's hard to believe that now, of course, with all the different classifications of prescription medications and how tight they are. But they gave him away like candy. And they had a family doctor that would write him whatever he wanted until he, I think he just died. He was so old. But he would give my father and my grandmother, his mother, uh, whatever they wanted. My grandmother would take pills all the time for headaches and things like that. It was very common to just reach for a pill instead of reaching for the source of the issue. Uh, they treated the symptom, not, not the disease, of course. Uh, then that doctor, once he, I mean, it was, it was it paralleled uh, or just came a little bit after Dr. Moot, uh, Dr. What's his name? Dr. Nick was Elvis's doctor. And they said he wrote him whatever he wanted all the time, even though my father was no Elvis. <laughs> I guess he had that relationship with his doctor that whatever he wanted. Like, um, Dr. Dr. Nick from the him. symptom from the Simpsons. Do you remember Dr. Nick on the Simpsons? You know, I don't, although I love the symptoms. I don't remember. Uh, there was this, the there's a guy like, but it's, like, it's, hey. it, but, but that's what he is. He's named after yeah. Elvis's doctor. I'm sure of it. Yeah. That's, Dr. that's Nick. wild. Uh, yeah. And he's, he's like, he's, he's kind of dishonest and kind of like, he's kind of like that, right? Just someone who prescribes anything for, for um, any ailment, you know, there's something in the Bible. It says, um, it says the sins of the father shall be visited upon the sixth generation, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm not a super religious guy who believes everything in the Bible. And that's not, not my jam, but there's certain things that I've, I've certain parts of the Bible that I've come across that like, when I hear them, they, they just, they tell me instinctually that the instinctively that there's something to them. And I think there's something to that one. And if we look at what happened with your dad, right? His dad died at 17 and then he carried around all that pain and didn't deal with it. And then, what happened is it gets it gets played on to you. It gets paid forward to you, and in all, for all intents and purposes, your dad died when when you were eighteen. And that moment when he just took the the drugs instead of you, right? That was symbolically a death, and you you broke that cycle, right? Instead of having that play on to the next however many generations, you chose to deal with that. And I can tell that based on the kind of person you are. You didn't just like take it all in and just not process it and just, you know, like become another version of your father. So I got to tell you, man, that I respect that a lot. That's a very difficult cycle to break. Thank you. But I had some help. My mother and her mother are the two greatest people I've ever met, ever, ever known. And they made sure that they counterbalanced in whatever way, uh, but mostly with encouragement and love and spirituality. Uh, and they always believed in me and always encouraged me. So whenever I started feeling like I was a loser like my father, uh, I would turn to them for comfort. Not that they would say you're the greatest thing in the world, but they would, it was positive re-encouragement that if you work hard, if you do the right things, you don't have to turn into your father because they both knew at that point. And thankfully, I had them for a long time and I still have my mother, uh, which, is, which is fantastic. Uh, without them, it would have been a different story. I'm absolutely positive of that. They pitched in and moved my mother out of the projects when I was almost 13 in September, 1975. It drove us to Phoenix, Arizona, where we live, uh, and she still lives, to get away from it all, to get me out of the projects because I was turning into a teenager and they knew if they were gonna save me, it's gonna have to be now before I started becoming a street guy or a wise mm -hmm. guy, or, or sure. I wouldn't listen to my mother anymore, my grandmother, which I don't think ever would have happened, hopefully, 
but it's it's due to them that if there's anything I am that's not like my father, it's due to my mother, my grandmother, 100%. But I knew I had to deal with it. It's one of the reasons I also promised my mother and grandmother. I had never tried any kind of hard drug, never coke, heroin, meth, speed, never stuck a needle in my arm. I've been known to have a few cocktails now and again. <laughs> well, yeah, other let's, than let's... that. Let's talk about that. I mean, uh... Uh, other than that, so I promised I'd never do drugs because I thought maybe I had some kind of genetic predisposition, some weakness, perhaps, that would turn me into my father or or send me down that path if I did these drugs, you see. So I thought it's I'm this close to being him because I have the path has already been been laid out for me. And if I turned it to my father, I would have hated it because then what's the point? If you don't grow and learn from that, what's the point of being here? Mm-hmm. And even if I didn't turn into my father, I mean, nobody wants to turn into the father, even the best father in the world. You don't want to be like him. You still want to chart your own path. But mm-hmm. I definitely didn't want to go down that path. And even if it wasn't just like him, who wants to throw their life away? I saw that also. Even if he was just a stranger on the street and I knew his story, I wouldn't want to turn into that. So yeah. I was uh, very uh, judicious in my self-medication. And I mostly did that with, uh, again, whatever way I could, having good friends and family and conversations, being honest and raw and feeling everything and enjoying a cocktail now and then. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's talk about that, Jack. I've just realized, as I said, this is my first video interview in uh, my tech. I'm still getting used to it. I'm on my screen. You're you're on my left. So and my camera's above me. So it looks like I'm looking down when I'm talking to you, but I'm actually just looking directly at your face. Um, oh, screen, and, and so. am I looking right into the camera right Yeah, here? you're looking square. Right? Yeah, yeah, it looks good for you. So I'm realizing i got to fix that. But um, Jack, I, I wanted to ask you, so you had this very successful show called The Booze Traveler, which um, for those who haven't seen it, you would travel around the world and imbibe the traditional drinks of a culture, right? So you went to Japan and you went to Ireland and the whole Scotland and a whole bunch of different places around the world. Um and you said to me something, we, we had lunch recently and you said something I found really interesting. You said like, it's that show wasn't about drinking. It was about something else. And I'd love you to, to explain that again for me. Sure. Well, you know, I try to figure out what it was about. When I got the show, uh, they told me what I was going to do, but they didn't really give me the bones of, of how to talk about that. Because I started doing press for it right away because they, they thought it was going to be a good show for them. We went from an order of six episodes to eight to 13 to 15, all in the same first season. And then Mm -hmm. after that, we did four years. Every year after that was 16 episodes. Then I did an offshoot show called Booze Traveler Best Bars. I did 10 of those and three episodes of this other show for them called The Trip. But as far as Booze Traveler, 63 episodes and about it's somewhere in the 50s of the countries I went to. And we'd stay there, too. I don't count the countries. We just touch down for an afternoon and I go see it. No, if we filmed there, that's what I count as being in a country and learning about the people and the, the which I guess I, I learned how to say what the show is about. And that's a an exploration or even a celebration. Even better of all the people, places and cultures of the world through the lens of a cocktail glass. It's about what people drink why they drink it, and the stories they tell when they do. And as much as that sounds like an anthem or a slogan or a cliche, that's really what the show is about. I always wanted to be a good guest. I wanted to learn about them, not tell them about their country. And why do you have this drink here? And what does it do for you? 
not not just physically. Of course, everybody likes to take the edge off a couple of drinks at the end of the night uh, and sit around with their family and whatever. But why? How, where did it come from? Your ancestors and the way you know. In most places around the world, alcohol is way more spiritual than it is here. And so to learn about that, uh, for me anyway, it was fascinating. So, so, so when you say uh, it's it's way more spiritual than it is here in the United States, can you give an example? Sure. There are many ceremonies in the places I went to that have to do with alcohol. For instance, we went to Peru in season one, and there was this shaman who had me in his house and introduced me to his wife and his children and showed me this room in the back that had a, I don't know, 12 inch maybe brick wall built all around uh, the room as, as you would if you were going to build a pen. Uh, and, the, and the two walls were the sides. In there were a bunch of uh, uh, gerbils, a bunch of uh, guinea pigs. And I said, oh, how cute. But there's a lot of them. He goes, yeah, that's our food. Which one would you like? And now, of course, I couldn't turn them down if someone brings me in and shares their, their family, their friends, their culture, then offers to feed me or give me a drink. I, I can't say no. So I, I point to one unfortunate soul because I wanted to be a good guest. He picks it up and just <laughs> separates the head from the body, but still there. It doesn't take it off, doesn't pop it off. But just like that, Kui is, is dead and he puts him in the oven along with the other ones he had prepared for his family. And uh, it's whole, full of fur, and it comes out like this. Uh, and then you slice the stomach and you put some rosemary in there and you eat it uh, like you would a baked potato. And uh, but this gentleman, this is what he ate every day. It was no, haha, let's fool this guy and see if he'll eat it. It was none of that. This is what they did. And then he took me to this very holy land uh, and he brought all these uh, all these things he used in his ceremony, along with what we were going to drink. And he pours it out. It's called Pachamama, pours it out to the earth and uh, gives it to the uh, what he calls the, the four winds, north, south, east and west. And goes like this from his mouth and shares it, not only with the earth, but with the universe. And he, he recites these uh, ceremonial, uh, I guess you'd call them prayers or chants or meditations. And then we, we drink. It wasn't just, here, wash down the coolie with, with a shot of moonshine. He sure. had such respect for everything in his life, including the alcohol that was such a part of his community, his culture, his faith and his people. I love that. So he had such respect for everything in his life. I really would like to be that kind of person. Someone who has respect for everything in his life. Me too. Uh, so you went to 50 different countries, which is a hell of a lot, more than 50 countries. That's a hell of a lot. What, what commonalities did you, did you see about people? You know, you say you would be drinking, uh, it was called Kui, this thing in Peru with this guy. And well, that, have... No, that's the guinea pig. That's the actual oh, okay. food. They call it Kui. But just, just to those who are doing the math at home, 63 episodes, but some of them were domestic. Like we shot Tennessee and Louisiana in season one. That's why it's only 50 plus countries, not 63. It was also a domestic show as well. Um, so, so there you go. I'm sorry. Uh, so I what else? What else? It's the a, question it's like, was. So, so like, look, you, you've been to all these different places. So you're having scotch whiskey with somewhere in Scotland and you're having sake in Japan with some sumo wrestlers and you're, 
in all these different places, having these different local beverages or, or experiencing these local alcohol rituals. And what was the common, was there a common That's what it was. that you picked up? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> common element. You'll have to forgive me, you know. I, I went through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, that's why the show went away. One of the reasons, they were also changing uh, formats a bit. And I thought I was fine because it didn't affect me all that much. Then I went through chemo. Then I went through maintenance chemo. So that whole thing was a couple of years. Then I had osteomyelitis. So I had to get a uh, pick line put in, and I had, uh, had to go get stuff in my arm every single day for a straight month without missing. Uh, and they said, oh, you're going to forget stuff. You're going to have chemo brain i said no way i'm great i'm fine i can remember everything test me whatever and just then i lost my train of thought so forgive me yes the commonality uh and and that's such a great thing because i think too many of us especially now and especially politically look for the differences between us i was never much of a joiner because if you joined a club or an organization or a fraternity or whatever it was it was my experience generally speaking that it was not inclusive, it was exclusive. We are this and everybody else is not. So we are either better than them or uh, however they looked at it, they treated people differently who were not part of the club. And geez, I hate to sound like a cliche, but we're all in the same club, aren't we? The humanity club. Why treat anyone different based on their skin color, their religion, their politics, anything? Base them on their behavior. That's how we should judge people because that's all that counts as far as I'm concerned. You can't help where you were born or the religion your parents uh, brought you up in or whatever, but your actions, we are responsible for our actions and our behavior. And that's how I judge people. And I use judge softly. That's how I observe and perceive and then say, I think this because you feel that because there are actions and behaviors that are not palatable in a polite society. You can't say you can, you can do that and get away with it. Too many of us, have that. So instead of looking for differences, I was the different one, by the way. I was the guest. So I would go there and find out what we would have in common, first and foremost, how, how we could relate. So I'd learn a few words in a bunch of different languages just to say hello. But then I'd soon say, look, I'm a fraud. Let's not have a conversation. But I just learned a few phrases just to say hello, just to show you uh, I care about you and your culture and your land. And I want to learn how to communicate with you. And then after that, we'd have a drink together. So that that uh, brought us together. But I think the one thing that that I that I learned is we have so much more in common than we do differences. Why do we focus on the differences? And sense of humor was one of them, even with different languages. We, We had these these great exchanges of things. And and even when it got lost in the translation, when they got it later, I remember I was in Mongolia with a, a camel herder and we were out milking camels. And we looked back to the tent and uh, they were making camel milk vodka. And it comes up through the middle of the tent and a hole in the tent of the gear, as they call it, or yurt. And it just is gray. But then when it's ready, it comes up with a puff of white smoke. And the guy says, the, the vodka's done. I said, either that or we have a new pope. And he didn't understand what that meant. So he looks at me, pope? And the translator had to tell him. And then he just burst out laughing because he understood it was a yeah. it was a wordplay. And clearly I didn't mean that he would be announcing we have a new pope. Yeah. And so we got we got along after that because he knew that I didn't take myself or the show too seriously. And that I think it's a great gift to truly want to make someone laugh because laughter feels good. Right. And I think too many comedians, 
comics, people out there are mean spirited and they punch down and they say, you know, that's not our job to make you laugh. We make you think and we make you this and we're supposed to challenge you and put you on the edge. How about funny? <laughs> it's funny in the equation somewhere because to me, that's the bottom line. If it's funny, it's funny. So sense of humor around the world, absolutely a, a, a great common denominator, but also the love that they have for their friends and their families and their ability and want to talk about that, to share that. You know, so many cultures are storytellers and they say, oh, Jack, let me tell you about this or that. And they get excited sharing their experience. And I found that just about everywhere, which is great. You would think they'd be shy. They're on TV. And they were at first until I started making fun of myself with my stupid puns or wordplay or whatever. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh, this guy's an idiot. I'll tell him anything. So not that I, I played the fool. It's just that I let them know that uh, it was about them, not me. And I wasn't going to get a, a joke in at their expense or try to do a TV show to show them in a bad light. And after that, uh, it was just great. So I think that sense of humor love of their family and friends and, and wanting to talk about shared experiences and asking me about myself and how we could find the commonalities. Uh, and of course, having a couple of drinks uh, yeah. in most places of the earth. And I mean, most, it's okay to have a couple of drinks to say, Hey, whoo, this is a tough day. <laughs> Look what happened. Let's have a drink and talk about it. Even if it's yeah. not the strongest stuff in the world, it's just the celebration of that, that we found something that's a spiritual connection to, you know, whatever, and make them feel better about themselves. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Uh, especially when you just said, like, we found something that's, and you said spirit. Yeah, and I just connected that. Like, that's interesting. Um, what, are you, what are you most grateful for in your life, Jack? Or most thankful for? Well, I, I guess first and foremost, that I'm still here. Because having gone through cancer, you never know which one you're going to get. It's spin the wheel, right? Thankfully, I got one that I could get over. But when it comes back, it does a lot of damage. So I have to be yeah, careful of that. Then at the end of those treatments for two years, I developed osteomyelitis. As I said, I put a pick line. Uh, they put a pick line into my bicep, around my shoulder, down my uh, chest, into my heart. And every day I had to drive myself to the hospital to get two hours of antibiotics put in there. And not that that was going to kill me, but osteomyelitis means your bone is dying. So anything could happen on top of the, the cancer that I had, right? So wow. at the end of that, I went back to my oncologist because I had six more months of maintenance chemo left. And they said, well, let's take it easy here for a second. You just went through a month of daily infusions. Before that, a year and a half of maintenance chemo. Before that, three or four months of regular chemo. And the whole time, including before that, you had cancer. Let's give your body a break a little bit. Oh, oh by the way, Jack. I've seen that show of yours, I want to tell you. Zipping around the world, doing this, doing that, all this crazy stuff, drinking these crazy drinks. Man, I got to ask you, do you know any good bars in Iceland? <laughs> That's... So I thought you were going to read me the right act, but that was just uh, uh, a <laughs> fun cool. exchange. But I, but I knew then that maybe I dodged a few bullets and that maybe I should slow things down. So I couldn't be grateful and enjoy my life and my family if I wasn't still here. So first and foremost, I'm that because I, I, right now I'm on earth longer than my father, his father who died at 44 and his father who died younger than me. So of all those generations, I'm here the longest. So I guess 
I'm grateful for that. And all the people who made this possible, including my mother, my grandmother, the rest of my family, my friends, the people in the business who've helped along the way or gave me insight or showed me things and all these wonderful people I met around the world who taught me things about relativity, how it's not so bad maybe compared to how it could be and to be grateful for everything. But if I wasn't here, I wouldn't still be, I wouldn't be able to still learn and grow. And I think that's, I really enjoy that. It's sometimes it can be painful, of course, but I'm grateful I'm still here so I can still do what I'm here, uh, do what I'm here to do, I guess. And that is to, I, I think, to, to, to search out and learn what happiness is, but to be there for others. You know, it's, it's why are we here if we don't make others' experiences uh, better? And if they feel the same way, well, then, then we have a wonderful community in which to live. So I'm grateful I'm still here. Yeah, man. I'm grateful you're still here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank gonna... you. Well, well, we'll see about <laughs> I don't know how long that's going to last, but so far it's working out. Yeah. Jack, thanks so much for your time, man. I, re- I really appreciate you, brother. And I'd love to have another chat with you someday. Absolutely. I'll see you soon, I hope. I told you that was a cool guy. <laughs> I met Jack in a bar with my friend Jonathan Sadowski about, I think it was about a year ago. And uh, we just hit it off immediately. And he just had a great vibe. There's no other way to put it. And the funny thing is, or the thing I find intriguing, is this guy survived a horrific cancer. And from what I'm sure you, you heard in the show, a horrific childhood as well. And you look at the guy and he's happy and he's healthy. Uh, you may not believe it if you watch the video, you, you probably definitely won't believe it, which is that Jack is 60 years old, man. The guy is 60 and he doesn't look a day older than 40. He's just in great spirits. He's got like a twinkle in his eyes. He's happy and he's alive. And those are the people I try to surround myself with. He's a great example of the people I try to surround myself with. And more importantly, he's a great example of the kind of person that I, I'm working to become. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Remember, we're on YouTube. If you want to watch it, watch the show you just listened to, head over to YouTube, search The Nicholas Gregorati Show, and you'll find this episode and the new ones that are coming up. Hope you enjoyed, guys, and I'll be back in another week with a new episode. Until then, remember, We're all alone in this together.